Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, January 16th. In today's news, Democrats relinquish control over the impeachment process as they literally walk the articles across the Capitol. The president secretly threatened three European allies if they didn't do what he wanted on Iran. And an inspector general testifies that senior U.S. officials have routinely lied to you about Afghanistan for 18 years now. But first, the big idea. President Trump has often revealed himself as woefully uninformed about the basics of geography and history during his three years as the most powerful man on the planet. During his first meeting, for example, with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, Trump told him that he didn't have to worry about China, explaining, quote, it's not like you've got China on your border. In fact, the two countries share more than 2,000 miles of border, some of which remains in dispute and is heavily militarized. Modi's eyes apparently bulged in surprise, according to people in the room when Trump said this. And a senior Trump aide concluded that Modi left the meeting believing that Trump is neither a serious leader nor a reliable partner. That view was validated when soon after the meeting, the Indians took a few steps back in their diplomatic relationship with the United States. This is one of the many wild nuggets from a new book by my colleagues, Phil Rucker and Carol Lenig, that comes out next week. They both won the Pulitzer Prize. Phil is the White House bureau chief. Carol's one of our top investigative reporters. The book is called A Very Stable Genius, and it's based on hundreds of hours of interviews with more than 200 sources, often corroborated by calendars, diary entries, internal memos, and even private video recordings. After Trump met Russian President Vladimir Putin in Hamburg in 2017, for example, Trump declared himself a Russian expert, and he dismissed the expertise of his then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who had negotiated with Putin over more than two decades as the CEO of ExxonMobil. Trump told Tillerson, quote, I had a two-hour meeting with Putin. That's all I need to know. I've sized it all up. I've got it. In the spring of 2017, Trump also clashed with Tillerson when the president told him he wanted his help repealing the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, a landmark 1977 law that prevents U.S. firms and individuals from bribing foreign officials to get business deals. Trump said it's unfair that American companies aren't allowed to pay bribes to get business overseas. The president's lack of knowledge about basic U.S. history also occasionally terrified his top aides. For example, when Trump was in Hawaii, he was preparing to take a private tour of the USS Arizona Memorial, which commemorates the Japanese sneak attack at Pearl Harbor that pulled us into World War II. Trump asked his then chief of staff, John Kelly, a decorated Marine general who lost his own son in combat, what Pearl Harbor was all about. Trump had heard the phrase Pearl Harbor and understood that it was some kind of historic battle, but Kelly was shocked that he didn't seem to know much else. Another former senior White House official told my colleagues for their book that Trump was at times, quote, dangerously uninformed. Some details in the book seem more harmless than disconcerting, but they're nonetheless revealing. Early in his presidency, for instance, Trump agreed to participate in an HBO documentary that featured judges and a bipartisan mix of lawmakers, as well as all the living former presidents, reading aloud from the Constitution. But when a camera crew came in to tape Trump, he struggled and stumbled over the text. He blamed others in the room for his mistakes, and then he griped about how the Constitution is written, saying, quote, It's like a foreign language. The President of the United States said the Constitution is like a foreign 
language. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, with pomp and circumstance, the House of Representatives delivered the two articles of impeachment to the Senate last night. The impeachment manager's brief ceremonial journey across the Capitol a month after the House voted to impeach relinquished Democratic control over the process that is expected to end in the president's election year acquittal by the Republican-controlled Senate. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi declared that Trump is guilty of an assault on the Constitution and rejected criticism that his impeachment is politically motivated. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell attacked the House inquiry as dangerous and unprecedented and accused Democrats of pure factionalism. Privately, McConnell and other senior Republicans still hope a majority of senators will think they've heard enough after opening arguments to make a vote to acquit the president without hearing from any witnesses. Several closely watched Republican senators declined to say whether they believe Hunter Biden is worthy of summoning yesterday, as there's some pressure from hardline conservatives to do so. And Democrats are unanimous in their view that the former vice president's son should not be compelled to testify. Trump's legal team is eyeing a swift trial that they hope will take less than two weeks. Their goal is to get it wrapped before the State of the Union on February 4th. The president is demanding his team do everything possible to block witnesses who would deliver damaging testimony about the hands-on role that he played in the Ukraine saga. Last night, Lev Parnas, Rudy Giuliani's indicted Soviet board associate, went on MSNBC and told Rachel Maddow that the president knew exactly what Giuliani and his team were up to in Ukraine. The president's lawyers are looking to cast as much doubt as possible on the two charges against the president of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, though there's a pretty large set of bad facts that are not in dispute. Senior White House aides are also gaming out how to manage Trump himself during this trial, which they expect him to watch, and they worry he'll tweet things that undermine his case while the trial's underway, as he did during the House hearings. Republican House members, many of whom jockeyed for official roles on the defense team for the Senate trial, will instead fan out across television networks. White House advisors say this is as much about ensuring that Trump feels like he's receiving a robust defense as anything else. The procedural formalities of the trial are expected to begin this afternoon with the reading of the articles, the swearing-in of Chief Justice John Roberts, who will preside over the trial, and then the swearing-in of the senators as jurors. Roberts will administer an oath to every senator. It's different from the one they take when they join Congress. Now they're jurors in a trial, albeit the trial of a president, and they're pledging to, quote, do impartial justice. So help them God. The oath is prescribed by Senate rules, and it's the same one that was used going back to the trial of Andrew Johnson in 1868. After that, the Senate is expected to recess for the weekend, and the trial will begin in earnest next Tuesday after MLK Day on Monday. Number two, a week before Germany, France, and Britain formally accused Iran of breaching the 2015 nuclear deal, which they did earlier this week, the Trump administration issued a private threat to the Europeans that shocked leaders in all three countries. If they refused to call out Tehran and initiate an arcane dispute mechanism in the deal, Trump envoys told the leaders that the U.S. would immediately impose a unilateral 25% tariff on all European automobiles. Within days, the three countries caved to Trump and formally accused Iran of violating the deal, triggering a recourse provision that could reimpose United Nations sanctions on Iran and then unravel the last remaining vestiges of the Obama-era agreement. The U.S. effort to coerce European foreign policy through tariffs, a move one top European official equated to extortion, represents a new level of hardball tactics with the United States' oldest allies. It also underscores the extraordinary tumult in the transatlantic relationship. 
Threats like this aren't the way most people deal with their friends. Number three, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction told Congress yesterday that U.S. officials have routinely lied to the American people throughout the 18-year war. John Sopko said in testimony before the House Foreign Affairs Committee that there is an odor of mendacity throughout the Afghanistan issue. Mendacity and hubris. He said three presidents have created incentives that almost require people to lie. As an example, Sopko said U.S. officials have lied in the past about the number of Afghan children enrolled in schools, a key marker of progress often touted by the Obama and Bush administrations, even though they knew the data was bad. He also said that U.S. officials have falsely claimed major gains in Afghan life expectancy, even though they knew the claims they were making were statistically impossible to achieve. In addition, Sopko criticized the Trump administration specifically for classifying information that shows the war is going badly, including data on Afghan troop casualties and assessments of the Taliban strength. But he said they then declassify misleading information that makes their strategy look like it's working. These kinds of lies, he said, are corrosive and even dangerous to a free society. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, January 16th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. <laughs>